turning this evening to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1 and verse 4. Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 4. And it came to pass, when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days, and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And our subject is God's call to rebuild the church. And we begin to study, God willing, the book of Nehemiah. Now, uh, uh, this book uh, is uh, traditionally uh, regarded as having been authored by Ezra. Uh, and uh, he, if he was the author, would have worked from Nehemiah's records, his memoirs, no doubt, and Ezra, the scribe and the priest, had unique access because of his position to Persian records, and of course he would have written under the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The book is written, and this is one of the reasons why it is thought to be taken from Nehemiah's own memoirs. It is written as from Nehemiah, and uh, it records his work in the Reformation of Affairs in Jerusalem and Judah. This uh, book starts in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. It's around 445-446 BC. And uh, Nehemiah becomes aware of the state of affairs in Jerusalem and in Judah. The first 12 chapters of the book cover Nehemiah's governorship of Jerusalem and that region of Judah appointed by the emperor, the king of Persia uh, and all that he was able to do and then there's something of a gap between chapter 12 and chapter 13 while Nehemiah returned to uh, the king and to his duties at the royal palace before returning again and finding that all the good order that had been established in Jerusalem had broken down and things had to be set right again. During the interval while Nehemiah was away back at the palace of Susa, uh, during that time Malachi prophesied warning the people and the priests concerning their sin and then Nehemiah returns so strictly you could take off the last chapter of the book of Nehemiah if you wanted a chronological bible and you could transport it down to after Malachi and put it there because the last chapter of Nehemiah or most of it would have been written after uh, Malachi's prophecy. So it would be the last part of inspired scripture in the Old Testament. That's chapter 13 of this book. So the first 12 chapters cover Nehemiah's 
12 years as governor, then he has the long absence and he returns and that's the close of the Old Testament, the last portion of his work. So just reading from chapter 1 and verse 1, the words of Nehemiah came to pass. He was in Shushan the palace that uh, somebody who's described as one of his brethren, Hanani, uh, whether he'd known him previously, whether he just heard this person speaking in the palace, uh, but he'd been to visit Judah, and he asked him the state of affairs there. Uh, news wasn't uh, frequently received. And this man and those with him told him the worst, the situation in Jerusalem. And it's there in verse 2, in verse 3. The remnant that are left of the captivity are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down and the gates thereof are burned with fire. So there is poverty, there is trouble, there are incursions by the hostile neighbours, the prosperity has gone, uh, everything is in pieces and the wall of Jerusalem doesn't appear to have had any construction work done on it since Nebuchadnezzar's troops threw it down at the beginning of the long captivity in Babylon of the, of the children of Israel. Well, nothing has been done to reconstruct them. And why the mention of the gates? The gates thereof are burned with fire. Well, gates of cities, especially walled cities, were very important in those days. They were grand. They represented the honour of that place. And if not only the walls, but the most important and symbolic gates are ruined and burned, well, that signifies that it's, as one might say, a nothing city. It's of no account, no consequence. So the honour of God is uh, uh, torn down and all that should have taken place with rebuilding and setting things in order hasn't happened. The temple's been rebuilt. It isn't being used as it should be. Nehemiah will find even that. But nothing has been done about the wall of the city. People have built their homes, especially out in the countryside. But the state of affairs of the city is terrible. Verse 4, and this is where we'll just look at the first chapter this evening. This is where you see the call of a reformer, if you like. He was going to be the Persian-appointed governor of Jerusalem. But uh, what brought it about? He's going to do a great work for the Lord. You could call this equally the call of a preacher, the call of any servant of Christ. It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned. Certain days, you can leave the certain out 
It's in italics, it's put there to help us. I don't know that it helps very much. If you take it out, I sat down and wept and mourned days. It probably says enough. This wasn't just a, a fleeting sorrow. He was really disturbed and concerned and cut and he fasted and prayed. And this went on for some days before the God of heaven. Well, this is going to be the book, a book about a servant of God, a reformer. It's going to be describing the condition into which Satan brought the typical church of the time, the type of the New Testament church. Of course, they were a mixed multitude. They had converted and unconverted, all mixed together. But nevertheless, they provide a picture of what Satan can do in a spiritual community. And we're going to read about that in the book. We're going to see the remedies to correct a bad state of affairs in a community of faith, in a church. We're going to see through this book the necessity of ministry in the church. We're going to see the countermeasures of Satan as Nehemiah, under God, carries out certain reforms, the methods that Satan uses to slow them down or stop them or reverse them. And uh, we're going to see the kind of faith and dependence upon God which is vital to the reformer, to his servants throughout this book. But the prayer is of great interest to us even as we begin. So Nehemiah, he hears these words and he weeps at the state of the church. Things are in such disarray. Well, I'm afraid this is necessary, but let's be depressing for a few moments. The period of time between the uh, destruction of the walls and the sacking of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar uh, to the time of Nehemiah is pretty much the same period of time that we've seen elapse in this country since the fourth quarter of the 19th century and today. The fourth quarter of the 19th century saw a great attack by Satan on the churches of Christ. And it's been relentlessly kept up ever since then. You go through the 19th century and the Victorian age and so on, and you see great advances of the kingdom of God. You've only got to look around you in London, you still see the evidence when the population of London was only a fraction of what it is today, you can see the remains of numerous churches. Almost every block of streets in central London has church buildings, probably converted into something else, shops, offices, warehouses and so on. But you've only got to look around you and you can see the church architecture of the, the Anglicans and the nonconformists all over the place. 
you can't walk from, or oh, perhaps things are changing now, but from here down the Walworth Road without passing building after building that was once a mission hall or a ragged school or a Sunday school or a church or a chapel. It's uh, everywhere. The uh, spiritual strength of spiritual witness in the 19th century was tremendous. And it had been, with ups and downs, pretty strong in the United Kingdom ever since the Reformation. The last quarter of the 19th century, and you see uh, Satan's counter-attack at its peak. And it comes into the churches, and I was mentioning this a few weeks ago, with the movement for biblical criticism starting off in the seminaries and the theological colleges with professors pouring doubt on the infallibility, the inerrancy, the inspiration of Scripture, pulling it apart, uh, inserting all their theories as to who wrote this and who wrote that and how many authors there were to this book and that book, disagreeing with each other, and the fragility and fallibility of the record. And no longer did a lot of these people believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. That was the start of the great collapse and young ministers being trained and sent into churches of all the mainline denominations who didn't even really believe this Bible, this book, or the faith. And the collapse began, and false things being taught, and churches being turned over to theological liberalism, where everything was critiqued and doubted. But it started then. And uh, we had here, for instance, C.H. Spurgeon, the pastor of this church in 1887, and the so-called downgrade controversy, where Spurgeon was protesting about the false teaching, first of all in some of the Baptist seminaries, and it led to a great confrontation and theological battle, and this church and numerous others left the Baptist Union denomination because it wouldn't take action against liberalism and unbelief and discipline its ministers. The Baptist Union considered it wasn't its business to implement discipline and that everybody had a right to contribute to this debate. And so liberalism was allowed in and the denomination began to turn sour and to become totally discredited. And now the number of Bible believers in that historic denomination is really quite a small fraction. And people with any strength of conviction, for the most part, have long since left it and uh, gone become independent churches. The same thing happened with the Methodists. The same thing happened with the Congregationalists. The got in the Congregational churches started a little earlier. And uh, the, with uh, Unitarianism, Arianism piercing their ranks, but it was the big collapse was the last quarter of the 19th century. 
And so it's gone on. Of course, accelerated by atheism, Darwinism, the theory of evolution, and then later on into the 20th century, Freudianism, and so on. But mainly, it was the churches themselves. They didn't separate the people who held the truth and believed the gospel and believed the word and had tasted the converting power of the Spirit. They were not quick to separate themselves from those who denied these things. And so you had churches mixed, unbelievers, theological liberals with evangelicals in the same denomination, as you have, say, in the Church of England, where the vast majority don't believe in an inspired, inerrant Bible, and a minority of ministers and congregations that do believe these things stay in. And of course that's a contaminating influence because the majority constantly is eroding further the little minority of people who are trying to be faithful. One of the things we'll find in Nehemiah is the disaster of those who are true believers not standing apart from those who are not true believers and who teach false things. Well, that's the situation of the last 140 years till now. In our time, it's gone even further. We've seen Satan making inroads among Bible believers with all the confusion and mistakes of the charismatic movements and and evangelical worldliness entering the churches and the contemporary Christian worship of putting the world into the church. Confusion now is everywhere. Now the internet's come along and some of the people who've become uh, great celebrities on the internet uh, and who've leapt first to harness its powers and project their influence have been not necessarily the soundest of people, but people who uh, support all kinds of compromises. Well, what can be done? With around the country, the historic denominations have fallen, many uh, independent churches that are evangelical are harboring now things that are destroying them. What can be done? Well, we come to the book of Nehemiah because uh, this is for us. This is describing uh, a reformer and we pray always that there will be pastors, ministers who have a re- of a reforming uh, bent and characteristic and like Nehemiah will be grieved at the state of affairs and commit themselves to standing for the old ways. So what are the qualifications for a reforming person or a reforming congregation? Well, you have it right here. Verse 4, I wept and mourned certain days. The starting point is to be very sorrowful about the state of affairs. You have to start with the negative. The starting point is to be dismayed and disappointed 
at the state of affairs. As there are in the population now so few churches standing for the truth and preaching the gospel. But Nehemiah goes to prayer. We look at the prayer beginning here from verse 5 and said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God. These are tremendous words. I beseech thee, O Lord. You'll see the word Lord is in capital letters, which means that Nehemiah was using the divine name, the Jehovah name, which means, uh, describes God as the self-existent God, the all-powerful God from whom all life and substance and matter and energy and life flows, the source of all things, and describes him as the eternal ruler. The great I am, to the Jews of old, the unpronounceable divine name, the self-existent God. Nehemiah knows what he's doing. He prays to a great God. He doesn't stumble into God's presence and start talking about uh, himself. You hear that today? You hear well-meaning ministers starting a service of worship by saying to God in so many words, oh, thank you for all our blessings. Thank you that we're all saved. Thank you that this has happened and we've seen this and we've seen that. Instead of starting with God and the worship of him and the acknowledging of him and his might and majesty and greatness. Unless we're praying an emergency prayer, that's how we have to pray. Get our perspective right to begin with. Address the living God. Show due humility and reverence to him. Truly connect with him as he is. The glorious God on high, I beseech thee, O Lord, the divine name, God of heaven, transcendent over all, the great, that word great, includes all the attributes of God, his truthfulness, his holiness, his infinite power, all his attributes and terrible God terrible God we, we uh, recoil at that word terrible God are the modern translations right to render it awesome God oh yes that feels much better the awesome God surely that would be more fitting and more accurate than the terrible God. Well, possibly, except that the word awesome has become quite a trivial term these days. It has, carries more the sense in which Hollywood uses it. You know, the, the big green dinosaur in the children's book is awesome. So the word awesome 
is cheapened and trivialized. It isn't any longer good enough for God. The word terrible, though it's a word that jars us, is actually nearer to the Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew comes from the verb to fear. The fearful God. The God who is to be feared. Not, of course, negative fear entirely, but feared because as we approach him, he sees us through and through. And he sees all our disobedience and our failings and our weaknesses. And we fear, in a sense, even as his dear children who believe in him as a loving Heavenly Father. He is the God to be feared. I can't cheat him. I can't play the hypocrite before him. I can't pray for things that I'd like, while at the same time not putting right things in me that are wrong. I've got to respect him utterly. It's more than awesome. There is something about God, even our loving Heavenly Father, that cautions us as we come. So I just spend time on this, but it's a big word. And I'm not sure that we aren't better off with the old-fashioned King James terrible than awesome. That it doesn't just move towards the intention of the original more. The God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant. He makes promises to us and is utterly faithful. This is going to be an argument. And mercy. Oh, he comes to this. He couldn't approach God. Nehemiah wouldn't be able to if he didn't believe that God will be faithful to promises he'd made and show mercy towards offenders. Mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Verse 6, Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open. There's been much discussion as to why Nehemiah should use both expressions. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open. He's calling upon God to hear his cry and to bear in mind the state of misery of the people for whom he prays. It's a God who hears and who sees. That thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I Pray before thee now, day and night. Do you see what's in those words? Nehemiah knows that God is not obliged to hear all our prayers. If he feels that our prayers are fleeting and therefore not deeply meant, maybe he won't hear them if he feels, as I've already mentioned, that our prayers are somewhat hypocritical. We pray well one minute and forget God the next, 
maybe he won't hear them. That seems to be implied in the way Nehemiah prays. The prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night. This is the prayer I mean. God reads my persistence, Nehemiah seems to say. He's a servant of God. And he's going to plead, not just in two minutes, but over time. And he's also going to confess the sins of his people, of whom he is one, which we have sinned against God. Sins against God, they're the most important ones, so that his honour is broken up in the eyes of the heathen round about and the wall and the gates left in ruins, and the city of God of no consequence. That's, these are the things that concern Nehemiah in prayer. He's going to be praying for the honour of God to be manifested. For so we, we might pray today, the, the object always is that Christ will be glorified, souls will be saved. Lord, help me in my illness. Why do you want to be helped in your illness? Oh, I just want to be healed. I just want to be cured. No, you've got to be able to say, help me in my illness so that I can witness and serve and bring honour and glory to the name of Christ. It's got to be a, a purpose, an objective, if we want God to hear and answer the prayer. That's the way in which Nehemiah is speaking. He qualifies everything he says. Hear the prayers of servants. Hear the prayers that are prayed night and day. He's going on to say, hear the prayers of those who obey. He knows there are conditions attached to prayer. But our subject is reformation. To see more churches planted more souls won, and we need to be praying like this. Verse 7, we have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Well, in our day, we'd put this differently. Nehemiah says, we haven't obeyed the moral law, we haven't obeyed the ceremonial law, and we haven't obeyed the judicial case laws given to Moses. He's got three sections of law which he believes the nation has broken. And we today pray along similar lines. We Bible believers, we evangelicals. We've neglected the moral law, yes. We've neglected the instructions about how we should properly run the churches and evangelize and serve God and we've forgotten the duties of the Christian walk separation from worldliness and sin and so on so we can make categories too just as Nehemiah did verse 8 remember I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses we haven't heeded the warning of God through Moses, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But it's the second part 
of God's word here that Nehemiah is interested in. Verse 9, But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments, and you're serious when you turn unto me, you keep my commandments and do them, you strive, though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost parts of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Even here, in God's promise, there are the conditions. If you sin, I will withdraw my blessing from you as a church, as a community, in their case. But if you repent, and you mean it, I will come back to you. But only if you're going to represent me and live for me and seek my glory and serve me, if you're going to come back to me just in order to have happy homes and happy families and a happy life, those are all good things. But if that's all you want, God seems to say, don't count on me forgiving you and blessing me, blessing you. You've got to have a purpose. If you repent, I'll gather them from thence, bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. So Nehemiah understands this is all about bringing honour and glory to God. That's the object of our every prayer. There's got to be a goal, a destination a purpose, an aim. If you pray without that God-glorifying aim, you're praying just for yourself. And your happiness and blessing and benefit and walk. You have to go further. Heal me, help me, use me, that I may serve the Saviour and bring honour and glory to him. Nehemiah knows the kind of prayer that is heard and answered. So we note these things. This is all about a reformer. What marks out a Nehemiah in Bible times, a Luther in subsequent history? It's this kind of thing. These are the distinctives of the earnest, committed servants of the Lord. Verse 10, now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed from Egypt years before and more recently from Babylon by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name. There are those who want to see better things. I pray thee thy prosper, I pray thee thy servant this day. Now we're coming to the great point of the prayer. You discover in verse 11 that the end point is going to be Nehemiah offering himself. 
In our case, it works like this. Lord, save my brother or my sister or my child or my parent or my work colleague. I will intercede for my work colleague. Save him. But if it's a Nehemiah prayer, this is how it ends. Save that person or those people and I am ready to be the instrument. I am ready to be the messenger. I am ready to be the one who has the task of mounting the witness. That's what he says. Prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer, a trusted high official. What would the king's response be? He was capable of being extremely angry. He was a despot. He was capable of uh, being furious at the idea that a trusted official should leave his side and want to go off and serve his conquered people far away. It was a tremendous risk to ask for a seal of office to go and, because this is really what Nehemiah did, and go and be the governor of Jerusalem for a period of years, 12 years. It's uppermost in the king's mind. How long? What are you talking about? How long? But he's ready to risk himself and to do this work for the Lord. Do you see this beautiful construction in the prayer? How Nehemiah understands prayer and we learn from him. He prays to a great God. He realises there are conditions to be honoured. He prays so as to show that he's in earnest and he really feels and means this. He prays with a goal, with a view to the glory of God and he gives himself. That's just to open the book of Nehemiah and to set the scene, the call, you might call it, of a servant of God, the call of a reformer, the call of a preacher, the call of a Sunday school teacher, the call of any witnessing Christian is all there in that first chapter. And then we will come on to the book and the astonishing things that Nehemiah was confronted with and had to deal with and the blessing and power of God as he did so. Let's close 